Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today with two very special guests. Returning guest, KP, uh, who's running the No Code Fellowship at, at OnDeck, uh, and special new guest, Emmanuel Shrashnov, uh, founder and CEO of Bubble. KP, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much, Eric. It feels like yesterday, but I know exactly. it's, it's, been, it's been a while. And Emmanuel, uh, w- welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So why don't we start with, uh, with, with some introductions. Uh, Emmanuel, let's start with you. Why don't you uh, describe to the audience what is Bubble and, and what is the, uh, the story of how you came to create it and how it came to, to grow so much? Yeah, so uh, Bubble is a no-code tool, which is now a pretty popular field. Fundamentally, what we're trying to do is we enable, enable people to build web apps without writing any code. So it's a pretty open-ended tool, and by dragging and dropping things and assembling a few workflows, you can build web applications. We built it with non-technical founders in mind uh, back in 2012. So we've actually been around for quite some time uh, because we felt back then, and it's still the case today, that it's a shame that so many non-technical founders cannot get their ideas off the ground because they were not exposed to computer science as kids, basically. And so today, uh, most of our users, uh, many of our users are like non-technical founders, and they build, you know, marketplaces, core, um, social networks, SaaS tools um, on Bubble, and they use us for their entire uh, backend operations, basically. And then KP, for those who, who missed our earlier episode, why don't you give a bit of background on yourself and, uh, and the No-Code Fellowship? Sure. So I'm KP, and uh, for a very long time, I was building no-code projects, uh, which is not a very long time in the no-code world, but maybe like three years uh, in the last three years. And I have p- built uh, many of my projects in public on Twitter, uh, mostly, you know, like marketplaces and um, apps that mostly solve my own problems. And, you know, uh, I was always a non-technical product guy and I was frustrated because I had to depend on developer friends or agencies to build uh, quick MVPs for the ideas that I had and you know no code allowed me to basically just go ahead and take action and then go from an idea to an MVP in like less than seven eight days so I built those and I joined on deck in October to essentially launch and run on deck's first ever no code fellowship and we're right now into the first cohort, eight weeks in, two weeks left. Um, and excited to to be on here. And then Bubbles, our inaugural partner, it's very close, uh, very closely involved with the way we we uh, run the fellowship at at uh, on deck. Awesome. And and so uh, l- let's get into no code more broadly as as just a primer, and then we'll come back to the the details of of how the program's going and how we're how we're partnering up. Uh, Emmanuel, why don't you just sort of give your overview for for the the layperson of of how no code is really changing the the startup creation process? Yeah. So um, first of all, I think no code is actually not that new in many ways. You know, it's actually what's coming down to technology from its very beginning, which is enable people to do things without code. And if you think about it, you know, MS DOS and Windows. Windows was no code when MS-DOS was code. And for some reasons, it's an idea that people kind of forgot a little bit in the 2010s when, you know, it was startup started really taking off 
And it was all about, you know, the hacker culture of, you know, the coders who would build things. And uh, what no code is about is to basically break this, which I consider was kind of a mistake that we made as an ecosystem and as technical people to think that only technical talent should be able to uh, build things. I mean, not to be too controversial, but, you know, Paul Graham said once, you know, what makes a team valuable at first is the number of engineers on the team. And I just think he was right when he said so, because the tools were not ready yet, but the statement in itself was a shame. I mean, it's wrong that it's like that. And so what no code is about is to change that dynamic and provide everyone with the tools that they can then use after some learning. I mean, no code doesn't mean there is no learning. There is still some learning, but it's much more accessible to um, provide them with some tools so that people can start companies uh, for much cheaper and much faster without uh, being limited by their technical resources or the funding that they need to find to hire an engineering team. And it's been an old dream for a long time, but over time, as the tools get better, you can push more and more the limits. And now we're at the stage where, to talk like practically, we've seen companies getting into YC. Actually, we've seen companies raise, you know, millions of dollars on bubble-built uh, platforms and some other local tools without a single engineer on the team. So the world is definitely changing. Yeah. K- KP, is there anything that comes to mind that you'd add to that? No, I think it, it, he pretty much, you know, covered the rise and the growth, um, you know, in the last few years. One uh, one additional comment I want to make is, is around the rise of even the creator economy, empowering so much of the no-code movement as well. A lot of people ask me, you know, what, uh, how these two worlds come together. Are they, are they complementary? And I think they're absolutely complementary because around the world, what we're seeing is a rise in creators, you know, individuals over institutions who are basically building audiences and they're, you know, building communities and they have a lot of tooling and infrastructure needs that they just don't have the resources to go hire a dev shop or hire a developer full time. So they're becoming no code, you know, savvy and they're just learning quickly, you know, Webflow, Airtable, Bubble, Adalo, and then just basically solving their own internal problems, which was historically never possible. And then we're seeing a combination of these two things happening. It's an interesting cause and effect thing. Like did no code cause the creator economy or the creator economy cause no code? It's it's they're working in parallel, huh? I like to think no code cost, <laughs> but I know Emmanuel will agree on this too. But I yep. think they're, uh, I'm curious, I, I think they are rising in parallel for sure. Yep. Of course, creative economy is now sexy and more mainstream much faster than no code took forever because I think no code's biggest challenge was this limiting belief that the ecosystem had for the longest time that, oh, no code essentially means no code at all, which means it doesn't scale. But that's not what it is. It's actually more of a mindset around quickly building something and, and prototyping and validating and testing. And if needed, you know, scaling as we grow. And, and more, many of the platforms, including Bubble, who we're talking to today here, actually scale very well. And, and, and Emmanuel, if you don't mind, want to share that fintech example that you, you, you quote um, your interviews of, of how there, uh, there was this fintech company that did, you know, yeah, over, over a billion dollars of business volume. We have like a startup in Paris that are, 4 million euros AR today, planning to get to eight by the end of the year. Another uh, of our users had like half a million page views a day. And it was not like a static landing page. It was actually a web app in the crypto space in the first wave of crypto being hot. So a couple of years ago, uh, and they had some referral program where people could get tokens. So it certainly can scale much more than people think. 
one thing I want to say about no-code is that usually when people meet, think about no-code, so first of all, as KP put it, there is some skepticism from the ecosystem that it might even work. And so with time, the product have gotten good enough so that people don't have that concern anymore. And then there is this idea that if you use no-code, you can't use code. And it's actually very wrong. The way no-code will succeed is not by fighting code, it's by complementing code. And then the, our mission at Bubble is not to make that code is not part of the landscape anymore. Our mission is to make that code is irrelevant for 90% or 80% of the use cases out there. So for the 20% remaining, you will still use code. The good news is 20% is not much compared to 100%. And so most of the time you can do things without code. Yeah. Emmanuel, I'm, I'm really intrigued because you started this so early. Give a little bit of the overview of the different phases of sort of no code acceptance. Like what were the inflection points by which it became much more accepted and, and much more prominent and, 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 and effective. So the very first phase for us, I mean, between 2012 and 2014 was, wait, why are you doing this? Squarespace is already here and it's great. So that was the first phase where you had to explain, yeah, I mean, Squarespace is great, but if you want to start Airbnb, you can't do it on Squarespace. So that's what we're working on. But that was not necessarily a messaging that was working very well because the product was not ready yet. Like no code is very much something that until you have a great product to show, people are not going to believe it. Then we have the community of early adopters starting in 2015. Uh, In fact, our first visible launch on Product Hunt uh, in October 2015, that went very well. I think I mean, you know, Eric producted very well. So then I think we got on our first week, maybe like 2000 votes or something, which back then was a lot at that point in 2015. And so that was a community of early adopters playing with it. Most engineers were like, this is never going to work. But, you know, product people and non-technical product people in particular started being a little bit more excited about it. And then I think it's toward the end of 2018 where the community of early adopters, you know, Ben also out of product and like Ben Tarsel and Makepad, people started, you know, communicating more about educating the market about no code, turned it into the point where early 2019 when, you know, well, Ryan Hoover, it's a lot of product and people here. Uh, Ryan Hoover wrote that post about no code where it's starting being much more on the map as an interesting way to build things. And then it really blew up, at least from what we could see right at the beginning of, of COVID, where I think it was not necessarily, there's no like logical relation to that, except that people had just more time to learn things. And so yeah. they had an opportunity, opportunity to start spending time learning new tools. And at that point, the tools were just good enough that it became what it is today, where today uh, I hear investors, when people pitch them, hey, uh, I'm building this, uh, they have like 2 million of AR um, and it's built on bubble. People are not going to be like, oh, I can't invest in this. It's built on no code. People are like, okay, show me what you have. Um, and so we're not at maturity stage yet. I mean, I would consider maturity where engineers use no code themselves you know, to build things. And we probably need to wait another couple of years to get there. But uh, we're suddenly getting to a point where People are not surprised anymore when you tell them you're building a no-code. Yeah. You were saying that the why now is is partially that people have, have more time. Um, where, where, is the, where is it going? Uh, how do you expect to evolve in the next uh, in the next few years? Well, what, what I'm hoping, I think that's where it's going, but it's also like a, a vision I have. So, you know, I hope it turns out to be true. My hope is that five years from now, we don't talk about no-code anymore. And it's just, you know, the, the way to build things similarly to, you know, Ruby and Rails, 
uh, React became the new way to build things. You don't have that many people who use, you know, C++ to do things. It's like low level, right? And so I'm hoping that five years from now, the default stack will be a no-code platform, hopefully Bubble. But if it's not us, I hope it's someone else because it's very much something the world needs. And then engineers will just be part of the picture when something new is needed and they need to extend the platform with code. That's where I hope it's going. KP, anything you'd add to where where you hope uh, for the future of no-code? I think what what I'm seeing is a a rise of a new identity, both within organizations like fast-growing startups and also even, you know, folks who are building side projects. And that identity is basically a builder, right? So I think what we'll see is, is in the next five to 10 years is a lot of the traditional product managers, traditional marketing slash growth managers or growth employees at companies well, like sort of embrace this builder persona yeah. and they will sort of build internal tools or external tools to sort of solve their own problems and just like, you know, not depend on already under-resourced engineers slash product development teams. So I think that would be an interesting um, curve that I'm watching closely. And I think the rise of this builder class is inevitable combined with the fact that there is also a rising of of a uh, creator class. So it'll be fun. Yeah. One thing that's interesting that you're, we're both seeing, or we're all seeing, is because it's so much easier to get something off the ground these days because of no code, people don't have to raise money uh, right, right away. And and so I'm curious, and I, mean, I know you have a bunch of thoughts, of this This is maybe to start with you, Sam with KP, is how you think about just sort of bootstrapping versus, versus uh, being VC-backed in a world where it's so much easier to get, get something off the ground and increasingly so. I'm a big evangelist for bootstrapping. I bootstrapped myself for nine, eight years or seven years. So, I, I, of course, it's something pretty close to my heart. The, yeah, the, the real value of this, where it's, the reason it's important is because a lot of people did not have access to capital. And that's where the, it was a tragedy, is that if you were not connected, and, you know, Silicon Valley has tried a lot of things to make, you know, people that are not in natural circle, circles that naturally have access to capital, uh, make it easier for them to fundraising, but it's actually really hard. It's a hard problem to solve. And so uh, the reason why this matters is not necessarily that, you know, it's cheaper to start companies for people who would have been able to raise money anyway. So this is better for people that are in locations that don't, don't have access to capital and can now keep product off the ground. This sounds like a small thing. It's actually a huge deal. The reason it's a huge deal is because before in the old world, What you would find is that technology would only be used for people that were working on problems that had like a massive target uh, TAM, you know, like addressable market, total addressable market, because otherwise you wouldn't be able to fundraise. Um, And it's actually, it it goes back a little bit to the founding story of Bubble, actually. So the founding story of Bubble is uh, Josh. So my co-founder before starting Bubble was the technical co-founder for a niche startup. And that startup was building a better tool for a profession that does not really exist anymore, I think. But back then, 10 years ago, it was a professional image keyworder. And so like that profession, the title was keyworder. So they would put keywords on pictures, you know, for photo star companies. And they built a great product. But the problem is there were probably a few hundred people in the world that wanted that product. And so they didn't redo the market sizing beforehand because his co-founder back then was a image keyworder and he really felt there was a need for that and eventually Josh had to leave because the company was not taking enough money and he felt very bad about this because 
these people deserve beta software, you know, like you don't have many of them, but you know, their job much easier with a better piece of software, but because the market was too small, it could not support an expensive engineer. And that's where creating something that makes that you don't need to raise money and you can bootstrap businesses is very important because it just makes sure it ensures the use that the use of technology is possible in places that would not have seen technology before. And that's true for professions, communities, regions, countries, you can go that everywhere on the spectrum. Yeah. I I can give some actually tangible examples just from like audience C1. Um, I was blown away by the first cohort's diversity of ideas and, and, and the sources of these, you know, fellows where they came from. Like, so, so we have, you know, a fellow in Nigeria Building a building an upwork for stay-at-home moms in that country, you know, who were impacted by COVID nineteen lo- job loss, and I thought that was brilliant. Like, you know, she she again didn't need anyone's permission. First of all, second of all, she didn't need any fancy uh, technical co-founder or a dev shop to take action, and she built that in the cohort. You know, while we we're all watching and we we're all like sort of you know uh, seeing her idea come to life you know and she leveraged a bunch of like noco tools like airtable and bubble and and it, it was fascinating to watch that and then there's another uh, example i, I want to highlight which is uh, a fellow from australia who who is using no code in in the niche of radiologists so he's basically tapping into a no code AI platform called levery and and he's helping radiologists like track and maintain the the patients who, who had these uh, radiology appointments and and basically like you know to make sure the next time if they don't have you know a lot of the difference between the the, the sequence of images they don't need to go and have an appointment etc it's such a very niche use case and of course you know it's a problem that he faced and he saw that other radiologists faced and this is a guy who he, who lives in that domain and he's a specific domain expert and he just built an built a uh, solution to solve this problem i think we're going to see millions of such use cases Eric, much more than someone trying to build a horizontal platform for for every doctor or radiologist on the planet. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and let's go deeper on the fellowship a, 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 a bit, partially with, with the the question in mind, KP, of how do people get started? Uh, you know, no code is is less intimidating than than learning how to code from scratch, but still, you know, in plenty intimidating for folks. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. No code is definitely, you know, one of the myths in the no code space is that people assume no code equals no learning. You know, it's not actually not. There is learning, as as Emmanuel pointed out earlier, um, but the, the kind of learning is slightly different. You don't have to learn syntax. You don't have to learn architecture. You don't have to learn things that were very sophisticated, and you had to go to computer science courses to to or a boot camp for nine months or ten months to actually uh, come out uh, something with something tangible that you shipped. No code allows you to uh, have. A, this uh, ship fast and fail fast and learn on the fly mindset. So you can practically apply what you're learning about a tool like Airtable, Webflow, Bubble instantly, like within a week or even less and immediately see and, and uh, see output, immediately take it to users and actually close that feedback loop really quickly. As, as with anything in startups, we know like the number one thing that matters is the velocity of, of the way you ship, right? So if you have an interesting idea, let's say you have a marketplace idea for sneakers. Now, back in the day, you would spend four months customer research, you know, you know, getting a, a scope in order, getting the product development roadmap. And like, there was so much whiteboarding time that was lost back in the day. And NoCode allows you to cut short all of that and simply build 
as you think through your own problem statement and see what's resonating and then ignore the rest of the problem statement that's not resonating and double down on the piece that is actually resonating. So that also kind of cuts into the building public mantra that I believe. And I know, Eric, we touched on it last time in the podcast too, is that I highly, highly recommend fellows or makers or builders or founders in the world to build in public and build an audience from day one. Don't wait until six months, eight months, nine months on the launch time for to have the users. Because if you build, nobody will show up like at the end, you know, if you don't invite them through the process. Now, how do people get started in no code? There's so many uh, ways you can get started. One of the things that I've noticed uh, as being part of the fellowship, it's getting increasingly overwhelming for someone to start. So a lot of what we do at ODNC1 is sort of like we offer the buffet of here's the landscape and we also offer curated recipes. Like here's where you should focus your most of your time. Here's the 80-20, you know, like platforms like Bubble. Here's how you start get started. There's these resources. And Bubble's doing a great job with partnering up and like, you know, making sure that the learning curve is as minimal as possible. There's still a learning curve, let's be real. But we're trying our best to make sure that people don't drop out of the learning process because of a lack of guidance or a lack of clarity. And the other thing we, we tend to do at the fellowship is we have this ship first mindset, which means we ask them week after week to ship at least one feature or an update or an increment into their project. What we tend to see is a lot of people actually just pick up simpler tools like, you know, like Softer, Pori, and I'm giving a lot of no-code tools here, uh, but Notion and Super, and they just simply ship uh, smaller ideas first, build that, uh, shipping muscle, and then they pick on like bigger projects and and ship you know a grander scope. That's great, Emmanuel. What, what would you add to that in terms of how, how to get started with with Bubble or, or more broadly? I mean, as KP put it, it does start with learning. That's actually something that changed greatly compared to two years ago or three years ago, where people had that expectation that things would work in, within minutes, and it's just not true. Like at the end of the day, no tool that lets you be creative will be something that you can master in a few minutes because if a tool lets you be creative, it has to be open-ended. If it's open-ended, you're going to make mistakes and it's fine. And you have to learn how to fix your mistakes and it's totally okay. And what we saw, especially, and that's something that um, social media has helped a lot, actually, the Twitter community has helped a lot, is people now are more used to the idea, okay, it's about learning, like, whether it's built in public or learn in public, like we had some people seeing on starting on Twitter, you know, hundreds of days of bubble, for instance, where they would not necessarily build something useful. They would just learn and learn in public, like share their learning experience with people um, is something that has changed a lot. Um, so my advice to people to start is, well, get in that mindset and don't trust me on that. Go on Twitter, go to the bubble forum and ask, you know, is it normal that it's going to take some learning? How long is it going to take and see what people tell you? And then go through the material that we offer, so I'm going to talk about Bubble specifically, I know that better, uh, go, go through the material we offer to learn. And there it's a little bit, it depends a little bit on people. So we've seen people do very well reading the documentation first from like the first letter of the manual to the last letter of the manual. We've seen people do very well with interactive lessons or videos. We started our own boot camps, uh, like Bubble boot camps. We parted with OnDeck, and so we've seen people learn very well through the OnDeck fellowship. Uh, as well, where, you know, in addition to learning the technical skills, you have also other things about the no-code movement that are being showcased that create bring additional context that is very useful. So it's really up to you. My advice, though, is not to try to jump right away and start building things, because this is based on what we can see talking to people and even looking at our analytics. Honestly, 
the worst way to start is to expect that there's no learning curve. The good news is people are changing. So that's good. That, that makes a lot of sense. Those are both great, uh, great descriptions of, of what to expect. Emmanuel, we were talking earlier about how the category has evolved. If you were a VC fund focused on investing in no-code tools and, and products, and obviously Bubble's the, the biggest investment uh, in the portfolio, but uh, you know you were sort of thinking about the surrounding ecosystem or other you know big opportunities uh, that that might exist or might exist in the future, what, what might come to mind or what would a, a thesis uh, look like? So my thesis would actually be to build on companies building on top of no-code tools, uh, because I think that's another tap uh, area. I think no-code tools is becoming hot enough that honestly, I think it, start, it might start becoming expensive to buy things in that space. My approach, if I were, and it's actually something we're starting to think about a little bit as Bubble, so similarly to what Slack has done with the Slack fund. Um, we're a little bit small today to do that, but I think there is an opportunity in the middle term to start doing this is start investing in companies uh, building on top of our platform or other no-code platforms because um, they have a competitive advantage that I think the users are realizing just because they go to them quickly because they can iterate very quickly, but that not all investors have seen yet because you still have a lot of old-school thinking that still, you know, if you don't own the code, it's not going to be a real technology. Uh, And I would actually prefer investing on that. I think there is a, like a really interesting opportunity in the middle term there. And I'm personally not an investor yet, Eric's, but I'll I'll put on my key hat and maybe prophesize a little bit here. I think the to me the interesting explosion that will happen is around the APIs, the endpoints around endpoints of these uh, no code platforms. So if, if so, as Notion is opening up their API, which is going to be massive because a lot of you know Notion like tools can be built. Uh, basically, add-ons and tools and plugins can be built on top of that, similar to what we saw with Slack and and Slack's uh, uh, marketplace. And same thing with you know, Bubble connects really well API-wise with so many things. Like there, here's a fun example: like there is a fellow at Audience One who is building a GPT-3, you know, uh, virtual ghostwriting platform. Uh, so he basically was able to hook up Bubble's API to GPT-3, and it blew a lot of developers, you know, minds. And they were like, what, what's going on? And so things like that are, are inevitably going to happen. And so what I'm excited about is this like focus around the APIs and like how the interconnectability of all these tools, like, you know, Airtable, Webflow and, and Zapier and Bubble and like all these tools coming together is way more powerful than people give credit for. That's a great place to wrap. Um, I guess today have been uh, Emmanuel from Bubble and, and KP for the OnDeck uh, No Code Fellowship Guys, let's uh, let's end with some plugs about where people can can learn more. Uh, uh, Emmanuel, do you want to go first? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, if you Google Bubble or go to Bubble.io, you'll you'll find us. And uh, for me personally, if people want to reach out, I'm always happy to discuss more no code stuff and bubble stuff in particular. So, any social pl- platform you can think of, I'll be at uh, Emmanuel Strashnov or even Emmanuel Bubble usually finds you uh, finds you there. Awesome. And KP. So find us at uh, beyonddeck.com. If you go to the site, there's you know no code uh, fellowship and you know hit apply if you're interested in any of what we talked about so far. Actually, one of the things that I want to plug here is we're looking for very soon we'll start our second cohort and we're looking for an interesting demographic that we haven't tapped on much. And I have a prediction here. I think every business function, marketing, sales, HR, legal, customer support will inevitably hire a no coder in their team. And we're seeing this already at fast growing companies, including on deck. We have 
I, you have at least 15, 20 people who are no coders on the team. And, and most of this is what happened to build tiny tools to solve their internal problems and to reduce the burden on the devs and engineering uh, teams. So startups will pioneer this and Fortune 500 companies will follow on. So that's a category that I'm very interested in for ODNC2 to explore further. We already have a few examples from ODNC1, but love to explore more. Um, if you're interested, please apply to, to ODNC2. Where you can find me on the internet, I'm at this is KP underscore on Twitter, but most of my stuff is built in public uh, and I'm always tagging be, uh, on deck. So, you know, you, you can't miss me. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just to echo that. I mean, it is remarkable. Yeah, I know Brandon just gave a talk today at the On Deck No Code uh, Fellowship about how much of On Deck's original infrastructure was was via No Code, and right. we hired engineers only only you know much later. Um, and it, it's just it's amazing how far how far you can go using tools like Bubble and and, and others. Huh. So uh, awesome. Uh, well, well, guys, it was it was great to have you on the podcast, and uh, look forward to more. Great, thank you. Great to be here. Thanks thank you. Us. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.